kpfa.org. It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Mm, today, today is Tuesday, November the 26th, 2013. Look out, here come the holy days. It's going to be a bumpy ride, Tiny Tim time. All these seasonal celebrations, for me, it's a pagan orgy. Candles and medieval music and bells, bells. Oh, in the old days, you could hear the bells. No more. All background noise now. Anyway. I'm waiting, you know, for the last day of the last year. Then I'll hear the charms at midnight, right, this winter, as I will be 80, 80 years old. Good God, that's mortality. Uh, I guess it's about time to find out what I'm going to be, what I'm going to do when I grow up. Time is a torment, or not. Time and the bell have buried the day, said T.S. Eliot, this season. I'm so anxious to share all my enthusiasms before it's too late. <laughs> and there are so many folks who'd rather I wouldn't. I want to list all the plays and the books and the movies I love. And I want to warn you about some that I loathe. Oh, 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 oh it's a problem. I used to be a film critic in print, but I don't know. I was expected to review all the popular films, you know, uh, and even television. Uh, some young people keep telling me that uh, television is the devil's paintbrush, and I keep trying to explain. It's like saying, don't read magazines. You kind of have to discriminate. One from the other. I don't watch anything that's interrupted with commercials anymore. That's bliss. Uh, now, of course, we should look at the whole picture. The job of a progressive... Well, we're obliged to test the waters, to follow the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. You know, connect, connect uh, Rambo and Ronnie Reagan. Now... Like I should take time to deplore this new movie or the new Hunger Games and study all the uh, media trends and the movies and all this cultural crap 
that tells us we are in the soup, sociologically speaking, in the soup. Yes, uh, guess what we did in the soup, right? Uh, Anyway, those of you who are lovers of the best, best that is thought and said, will want to see uh, Shakespeare's The Hollow Crown, It's been on PBS recently. I'm just going to go buy it. It's $45. It's four Shakespeare history plays. Richard II, Henry IV, parts one and part two, and Henry V. Uh, Knocked my socks off. You know, those are, uh, what do you call that, vroom, vroom history plays. And, of course, there is a little sword fighting, but... Basically, uh, it's all about language. I think I watched them at least three or four times the first time they aired one play a week. But uh, I'm ready to go again. Uh, ah, what a joy it is <laughs> to, to know that Shakespeare is still there, always there at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, anybody, if if you're... If you're not in the mood to tackle Shakespeare, you can find a terrific play on the the War of the Roses, right? The White Queen is still, still screening on the Stars Network. It's ten hours long. Uh, It's all about the War of the Roses, too, right? Um, All that mayhem back in the 15th century. I just love historical romance. Anglophiles just love this show. <laughs> yes. I keep saying, yes, God isn't dead. She's just gone to the movies. This week I sprained an ankle and I've been curled up on the sofa watching everything, everything, especially Turner Classics, you know, TCM 1928, a film made in 1928. That's so much more fascinating than modern films that overdress the past, you know. It's just amazing to try to read or interpret these old films, these silents. Uh, Lillian Gish used to say that silent movies uh, were like music, that all the mystery had gone out of things when the talkies came. I remember... Is it Louise Brooks saying that uh, the movies became, what is that, conservative and conventional when the talkies came because the actors had to go home nights and learn their lines, whereas before that it was all just gypsies and fly-by-nights that did the acting in the movies, she said. But, you know, once it became big money, uh and uh, people had to get up in the morning. That was the end of the hoopla. I love to look at the roles of women in the old movies. Uh, I think young people are often shocked to see that women in the past were much more liberated or liberating. Back in the day, a lot of times, Kate Hepburn, Joan Crawford, Carol Lombard... They broke the rules. Uh, They really had fun doing it. The romance of feminism. A lot of it lost its charms for me once it got through to me that it was all about 
the money, all about economics. I'm so naive. I think, I thought, freedom, freedom for all genders, that freedom meant being an artist, or anyway, thinking and feeling like one. I thought, well, men would learn all about children, about, uh, I guess we call it the woman's world, uh, all about subjective feelings about home life. It's so hard to describe without being uh, derogatory. The things women do, I always thought were the best things. Nowadays, there seems to be uh, mm, this notion, what is it, jobs, jobs, jobs. I can't imagine why anybody would think freedom meant getting a job. Anyway, uh, I think women should have adventures of every kind. Uh, terminal naivete, it's certainly economic determinism. The day I saw all the young women in tennis shoes and briefcases running down uh, Kearney Street in San Francisco. The light went off in my head. <laughs> anyway. Never mind. Never mind. It's turkey time. I should talk about turkeys. Yes, it's turkey time. Uh, what are we thankful for? I am thankful that I'm not cooking. I'm also uh, thankful, very thankful, very gratitude, yes. Uh, full of gratitude is what I am. That's it. More than thankful. Uh, I'm full of gratitude for uh, not just the amazing fact that I've survived 80 years, but that Doris Lessing, the great English writer, uh, survived for 94 years when she died last week. I, I thought uh, about her work. I reviewed all the things that uh, I learned from her. I was thinking about her effect on my life. She's certainly one of the writers who brought me the romance of liberation, certainly. She insisted that she was not a feminist. Uh, of course, her whole life was a statement about uh, the illuminations of women, uh, the freedom of all of us, the liberation uh, of the race. There's an interview on the radio, some little excerpts from her Nobel speech. She got a Nobel Prize for her book, The Golden Notebook. <laughs> she said, well, I just write, you know, what women say and think. Wow, that'll get, <laughs> that'll get you in trouble. She conceded, that there is something to this task of writing. Uh, she said that Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and all those great novelists, you know, they may not save us, may not cure all our ills, but there are a few rare souls reaching out, uh, reaching out to a, a few other souls. That's what civilization is century after century. Uh, in that Nobel speech, she said that heaven approved of the work. I thought that was kind of, I thought that was kind of, it's um, the word, uh, kind of comforting. Yes, she didn't think much of the Nobel Prize, but 
once she got to Stockholm, once she decided to give the speech, she decided to say that that, uh, uh, writers were probably useful. For me, she's a literary saint. It's hard to find the right words without being sanctimonious. Saint is the only word that comes close. Mentor, teacher, guru, passionate thinker, revolutionary. One of her radical gestures years ago was to unmask the publishing racket, um, the business of publishing books. She wanted to demystify that great writer myth. Uh, after she had become uh, famous, become one of the stars of the English literary establishment, <laughs> she submitted manuscripts uh, to publishers under another name, uh, pseudonym, right? And, of course, these manuscripts were rejected. Although one publisher did encourage her, saying that her style, uh, her style reminded him a little bit of Doris Lessing. <laughs> the Golden Notebook is one of the essential books. Uh, I put it up there, her women's studies, right? The White Goddess. Oh, shoot. Oh, golly, there's a whole list of them. They date all the way back to the early 20th century. Uh, yes, Robert Graves, The White Goddess, I guess Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, The Dialectic of Sex, that's Shulam of Firestone, Kate Millett's Sexual Politics, The Works of Robin Morgan, Mary Daly. Of course, any woman who picks up a pen is certainly a feminist. Uh, writing is fighting as the men say. My gratitude for Doris Lessing comes, I guess, from her insight into the ways women and men compartmentalize life. She saw how we we are split, how we label things. Uh, when I read The Golden Notebook, I understood uh, some of this. I, I myself kept a blue notebook for personal stuff, mm -hmm. unpublishable, unpublishable, most of it, you know, especially the stuff about maternity, yuck. Very few editors would even read it. I had a red notebook for politics, you know. Then I realized that the golden notebook was the whole thing that contained everything. Gloria Steinem talks about the little click that happens in your head, you know, and suddenly you you get an insight. And uh, Doris Lessing illustrated all the ways that the personal is political and all the ways the political is personal. Yes, all politics is local. This split personality uh, in women and in men... Uh, followed me all my life. I think I got past it, but probably not. Uh, I remember uh, in college, I was at a woman's college in Oakland at Mills, and one time one of the professors came to have dinner with us in the, uh, the dining room in the dorms, and he did not recognize most of us, because, of course, when we came to class, we were all scruffy and, uh, you know, we had 
We had our hair knotted up in all sorts of ways. Anyway, we were just our our natural selves, whereas when there was a dinner, we were all dressed up and turned out. You know, we had our faces on. <laughs> also, we changed our manners. It's a wonderful description of Edna St. Vincent Millay, the way she behaved, you know, uh, when the man came in the room. Uh, instant transformation. I guess the ultimate would be Anais Nin. She said that the only place she could really be herself was in a taxi cab. Going, going from one to the other. It's the backstage life that women have. Uh, on stage, a woman is on display on the auction block. Some of them read the slave accounts of women dressed to make a killing or to be killed. God knows the despair of those women trying to keep their children, uh, trying to win favor. You know, they were under male control, whether in a slave market, whether you were a chattel or property or even a wife. Mary Todd Lincoln, yes, Abe wouldn't do it, but her son, Mary Todd Lincoln's son, put her in the madhouse after he had been assassinated. Uh, Jess Elliott had his wife uh, committed. The Bronte sisters, under the thumb of their father, read Elizabeth Gaskell's wonderful biography of Charlotte. Uh, back in the 18th century, the uh, feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, you remember, the rights of woman, uh, came out about the same time. Yes, as John Stuart Mill's The Rights of Man, anyway. Mary Wollstonecraft was unable to be financially independent because her brother took all the family's resources. She didn't get a dime. Nineteenth-century women were really stiffed. I mean, I don't know, they they uh, didn't get a property act. Let's see, the property act came along in eighteen sixty something, and bit by bit, women became uh, citizens, people able to own their own stuff. Never mind. All that legal stuff is important. The politics is essential. I hear people, especially women, arguing over whether rights are the more valuable thing to have. Right? Yes, Virginia Woolf said no, that influence was the biggie. Uh, mm-hmm. She said she, well, she said she'd rather have money than the vote. <laughs> think of the think of the Greek poets, how they were influenced by women, uh, all that anima in Euripides, obviously. Women influenced men in the area of creativity. Euripides uh, was surrounded by women, and uh, they became part of his imagination. He could see what was wrong, but... Uh, the books and the thoughts of women writers evolve and grow. I think of each woman chronologically as kind of like a uh, knot on a rope, and the rope is something I'm crawling up, you know, to come out of the well of darkness. 
I'm certainly not sure we're any wiser today than before, oh, the last feminist wave in the 70s. Uh, oh, the martyr Andrea Dworkin died very young and misunderstood. Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton are still dead, and certainly they were not the only suicides. Today, more women are writing than ever before. They're turning the stuff out. (laughs) Every day I get more and more books in the mail. Whether or not they have become philosophers, uh, I'm not sure. They certainly have become entrepreneurs, uh, saleswomen. That's okay. That's that's the way it be sometimes. Always there is a mass of books, most of them mediocre. There's an ocean, ocean of uh, writing, sort of a sea of consciousness. And then after a few years, if you watch carefully, you see a few books float to the surface find their way on the shelf of history. Uh, I'm not sure what the books today, are. most of them written by black women, which ones will survive and be the touchstones in the future. Uh, it's so strange what we do with the classics. We take all the great books and women give them a spin, change the spin. Uh, <laughs> last night, for some reason, I caught a new version of Wuthering Heights, a film. It's a recent production, fairly recent. Um, it casts a black actor in the role of Heathcliff. There's a nice spin. Uh, uh-huh. Both of the main characters begin the story as adolescents. Uh, there's very little remains of Emily Bronte's book, uh, They jump right into religious repression. Yes, Victorian repression becomes religious repression in this interpretation. Uh, Right off, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes into the movie, they drag Heathcliff to to the church. And uh, they, they say, Heathcliff, do you reject Satan? He runs off. Anyway... I thought it was a nice, uh, a nice switch, a nice uh, try. Every age spins these ancient stories to suit the mood of the time. Rewriting Euripides used to be one of my favorites, you know. Modern Electras, I loved those. Women who identified with their fathers, you know. Uh, oh, I've seen fascist versions of Hamlet, and there's some wonderful anti-war versions of Henry IV, Henry V, Kenneth Branagh, especially good at that. Of course, the text of these works must retain the spine, the spine, the poetry. The sources are sacred. Uh, We who write, (laughs) content providers, that's what we are, content providers, still must hang on to the vision, you know. It's our religion, although that's another word, like saint. It's a word that misleads students. Uh, Religion, 
think the origin of the word has something to do with a practice, uh, a discipline. Religion is something that you do all the time. You know, uh, think of it as a practice, a rehearsal. It's your job. Music must be rehearsed, stories must be edited, images must be drawn, of course. Art, yes, art and religion is what we do. Now, what I find fascinating is that uh, art sprang from religion. There is no real separation if you go back far enough. Uh, I wanted to read you something by Engmar Bergman. He talks about the feeling that uh, religions gave him. Yes, he says that uh, the earlier religions, Christian religion, he says, doesn't matter whether he's a Christian or not, but he says that creativity shouldn't be separated from worship. Yep, it's the vision thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do want to read you that. Uh, make Mother Earth your Messiah, the vision thing. Green gods. I know some kids were doing a play about the salmon. Yes, they're going to save the salmon. Uh, okay, eco-warriors instead of ego-warriors. Here is what Angmar Bergman says about worship. Worship and uh, art and creativity. It's an essay I wrote called The Master Builder. That's what I called Angmar Bergman. This is from the Seventh Seal. It's an introduction to the English translation of the Seventh Seal. Yes, Simon Schuster, New York, 1960. Angmar Bergman, master uh, filmmaker, writes, It is my opinion that art lost its basic creative drive the moment it was separated from worship. It severed an umbilical cord, now lives its own sterile life, generating and degenerating itself. In former days, the artist remained unknown. Today, the individual has become the highest form and the greatest bane of artistic creation. The smallest wound or pain of the ego is examined under a microscope as if it were of eternal importance. The artist considers his isolation, his subjectivity, his individualism almost wholly. Thus we finally gather in one large pen where we stand and bleat about our loneliness without listening to each other, without realizing that we are smothering each other to death. The individualists stare into each other's eyes, yet deny the existence of each other. We walk in circles, so limited by our own anxieties, that we can no longer distinguish between true and false, between the gangster's whim and the purest ideal. And thus, if I am asked what I would like the general purpose of my films to be, I would reply that I want to be one of the artists in the cathedral on the Great Plain. Uh, that's a reference to the collective building of the cathedral of Chartres in France. 
He goes on to say, I want to make a dragon's head, an angel, a devil, or perhaps a saint. I want to make a saint out of stone. It does not matter which. It's the sense of satisfaction that counts. Regardless of whether I believe or not, whether I am a Christian or not, I would play my part in the collective building of the cathedral. And more about creativity, maybe next Tuesday. Until then, this has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. There's your picture, drop the shadow, out of sight. How does she do it? Time after time she reveals our hidden concerns. Then she offers relief, deep spiritual relief, often mingled with sparkling humor. She is trenchant, soulful, refreshing, and honest to God, down-home funny. She is Anne Lamott, of course, best-selling author of Traveling Mercies, Bird by Bird, and the sparkling new Stitches, a handbook on meaning, hope, and repair. She'll be at First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way in Berkeley, December 4th. This is a KPFA benefit, supported by Pegasus Books and hosted by the San Francisco Chronicle's beloved veteran columnist, Leah Garchik. There's wheelchair access. Tickets at brownpapertickets.com or great bookstores. More info on the KPFA website. Don't say you weren't told in advance. December 4th, Anne Lamont.